Good morning again. Our sermon text from this morning, for this morning, comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 17. If you could turn there in your Bibles with me. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to grab one from the back table. And if, if you don't have a Bible at home, you should feel free to take that Bible and keep it as your own. Write your name in it. Bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Right now we'll be looking at Matthew 8, uh, verses 23 through 9, 17. And let me pray for us before we read God's Word. Father, we, we again come before you uh, to hear from you, to receive from you. Uh, we, we come to your word that we might hear of your, you, hear of your glory, hear of your grace, hear of your Son, and we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us, that you would give us ears to hear, give me the right words to say, and we pray that you would be glorified in our time together as we open your word. Uh, teach us and draw us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and seas obey him. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out and send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, every moment, every one of us is living for some glory. It might be the glory of comfort or the glory of food or the glory of chocolate cake or the glory of sex or the glory of reputation or money or material things or knowledge or the simple pleasures of life or well-behaved kids or the perfect spouse. Whatever it is, every moment we are living for something, most often some created glory. Everything in this life has its own peculiar magnificence, its own peculiar greatness, its own peculiar pleasure that God has put into the world, and those pleasures very often grip our hearts. And we chase glory because we were created for glory. We were not created, of course, for the glory of created things, but we were created for the glory of God. We were created to, to chase his glory. God's glory is his, his greatness put on display for the world to see. But more often than not, we focus on the glory of created things, the greatness of the things in this world, rather than the glory of the creator. Well, we're going to see in our passage this morning, we're going to get a glimpse of the glory of Christ, our King. Now, a king's glory can be measured in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, the Proverbs say, in, in a multitude of people is the glory of a king. Right? So kings who have, who, have a, who have a number of subjects or who have a humongous army, right? They have great glory. Or you can measure a king's glory in the, the amount of gold he has or the number of battles that he's won or the enemies that he's conquered, you see, you measure a king's glory in, in, in money and might. And yet the glory of Jesus is different. King Jesus' glory is this, as we see it in this passage this morning, that he is God, come in flesh to exercise his authority, not to, to conquer and destroy, but to exercise his authority to forgive sins and to show mercy. The glory of King Jesus is, is that he is God come in the flesh to exercise his authority, not to conquer and destroy, but to forgive sins and to show mercy. That's, the, that's really the one point this morning. We want to see Jesus' glory in his showing mercy and forgiving sins. Now, we're going we're gonna to step through that 
and, and there's an outline in your bulletin, and it's, uh, there are four points on there, missing Jesus' glory, seeing Jesus' glory, celebrating Jesus' glory, and then the question, uh, why, why you need Jesus' glory? Why do we need it so badly? So first, we'll, we'll talk about missing Jesus' glory. In the stories this morning, we read a number of stories this morning, and in each of those stories, there are people who have Christ right in front of them. They have the image of the glory of God incarnate, right? The Son of the Father, who reflects the Father's character perfectly, is right before their eyes, standing in front of them, but they don't get it, right? They, they miss it almost every time. Not quite every time, but almost every time they, they miss it. They, they see Jesus, but they, they miss the glory of God right in front of them. And you have to ask, well, why? Why each of these people, the disciples miss it, the scribes miss it, the Pharisees miss it, the disciples of John miss it again and again. Why do they miss the glory of Jesus? Why can't they see it? He's standing right there. Why do they miss it? Well, they miss it because they can't see it. Okay, but why can't they see it? Why not? Well, there are different ways of answering that question. One way is to say, well, their, their eyes are blind, their hearts are darkened, um, they, they need but lack the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and give them spiritual understanding. That's true. That's one way of talking about what's going on here. There's another way, though. The reason they don't see what, what is going on right in front of them, the reason they don't see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the King of the Jews, as God in the flesh, who's come to conquer and res- restore the reign of God in the world, the reason they don't see that. It's because they have a different notion of who the Christ is supposed to be. You see, they, they have this preconceived notion of, of who the Messiah is supposed to be, and Jesus doesn't fit with their picture. They have this, these certain presuppositions about who Jesus is supposed to be, and as a result, they miss who Jesus actually is. And who he is, standing right there in front of them, completely surprises them, it shocks them, and it even offends them. And of course, this can happen to all of us, right? When we we can read about Jesus, we can hear about Jesus, we can see Jesus in the scriptures, and yet never truly come to know him. We can miss him. See, we have certain ideas about who Jesus is or who he's supposed to be. Maybe he's supposed to be a good teacher or or a religious leader or a gentle man or a lover of humanity or a rebel against the system, right? Whatever your preconceived notion of who Jesus is supposed to be, if you're holding that in your mind, you can read the scriptures, holding that in your mind, and completely miss who he really is. And we're going to look at a number of stories. We're We're going to walk through these stories. And this section is really one long journey to answer the question, Who is Jesus and why did he come? Who is he and why did he come? And the disciples actually ask that first question at at very close to the beginning of our text. They say, uh, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? The disciples are asking that question. Who is this guy? And as we walk through these stories, I want us to, to notice, to notice who Jesus is, to notice how people respond to him. The way they respond, respond very often is, is drenched in irony of one kind or another. Their, their cluelessness is often a clue to who Jesus really is. 
And so as we look, I want us to I want our eyes to be open, right? To see Jesus in all his glory, to see who he is, to see that he is God come in the flesh, to see why he came to show mercy, to see Jesus' glory in his authority as God to forgive sin and undo the curse. The people in these stories miss it. So we need to, to pray and keep our eyes open and keep our ears open so that we don't. So let's, let's, look, let's look at these stories and see the glory of Jesus, right? The fir- first three stories that we have in this section are miracle stories. And in each of them, Jesus displays his authority loud and clear. He displays his authority over creation. He displays his authority over the demons. He displays his authority over sin and, and corruption caused by sin. Uh, the first story, Jesus displays his authority over cre- creation, Uh, You you may be familiar with this story. Jesus and the disciples are out on a boat and a great storm arises and the sea is is ready to overtake them. The waves are are swamping over the boat, filling it up, and the disciples are scared to death. And where is Jesus? He's asleep. He's asleep in the back of the boat. And maybe it's because he had had a long day of ministry and he was just really, really tired. Maybe he just knew that his father was going to take care of him, and he wasn't worried. But he was asleep in the back of the boat. The disciples are terrified, and so they come to Jesus, and they say, "Um, Lord, we're perishing. Save us. We're about to die. Do something. And Jesus, interestingly, rebukes them for their little faith. He says, why are you afraid, or you have little faith? And then he, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus, with just a word, calms the sea and stills the storm. And the disciples say, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. You know, there are lots of things that we can control. Weather is never one of them. <laughs> and yet here's Jesus. And with a word, right, he controls the weather. And the disciples wonder, who is this guy? It's interesting that they wonder, who is this guy? Because the Psalms tell us. I mean, you can just look back at the Psalms. That who controls the wind and the sea according to the Psalms? Psalm 89 verse 9 says, God rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, he stills them. Psalm 65 7 says, God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 107 says, God makes the storm be still and the waves of the sea to hush. The Psalms tell us who controls the wind and the sea. The disciples are dumbfounded. They ask, who is this? They miss Jesus' glory. They they, they miss it. I mean, they, they see it, and yet they miss it. They don't get it. Who is this? And, of course, what's interesting is in the next story, the demons are ready to answer that question. In the the second story, Jesus displays his authority not over the creation, but over the demons. Really, the only people who get Jesus in this entire section are the demons. They they know exactly who he is. They come out and immediately announce who Jesus is. Look at verse 29. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know. They know who Jesus is. They know he's the Son of God, and they address him as the Son of God. They they know he will one day cast them into everlasting torment. They know there's a judgment coming. 
And so they ask him, have you come to torment us before the time? They know it's not judgment day yet. They know, they get it. The disciples are dumbfounded. The demons simply declare Jesus is the son of God who will put an end to the reign of evil in the world one day. That's what the demons know. Well, Jesus sends them, allows them to go into a herd of pigs. Those pigs drowned and the, 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 the herdsmen run to the city. And the, these herdsmen, this is a, the Gentile territory. They're raising pigs, which means they're not Jewish people. They're Gentiles. They, they really have no preconceived notion of who the Messiah is supposed to be, right? Unlike the disciples. And they recognize Jesus' power for what it is. He casts out demons, right? He must have some power. And so they ask him to leave, right? It, it, it makes perfect sense, actually, right? I mean, they're scared to death because they don't know what to do with this person, they have no category to fit him in. He just cast out demons and a, a, a great herd of pigs plummeted to their death. Right? This guy is not safe. When you have a being with ultimate power in front of you who's seemingly to you killing a herd of pigs, taking away your livelihood, this is scary and please go away, Jesus. Right? Go away. You're not safe for us. And interestingly, he listens. He leaves. Then we have another story, another miracle of Jesus, a third, uh, this time another healing, a healing of the paralytic man. It it may be familiar to, to many of you, but it's really an amazing story. And what's amazing about it is that Jesus doesn't initially heal the man. There are some guys, they they have a a friend who's paralyzed, he can't walk, so they bring him to Jesus on a bed, they set him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say. Initially, rise and walk, be healed, be well. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, just as we saw the disciples respond to Jesus saying, who is this guy in the story of the storm? We see the demons respond to Jesus. We know exactly who you are. The Gentiles respond, you're scary, go away. Here we see the scribes respond to Jesus. And they respond to Jesus' authority by saying, who does this guy think he is? Right? They, they know that no one can forgive sins except God, right? I mean, if you sin against me, I can forgive your offense to me, right? If you sin against me, I can say, yeah, I, I forgive you for whatever offense you cause. If you sin against me, I can do that. But I can't simply wave my hand and say, your sins are forgiven. I don't have authority to do that as an individual, now, if you've sinned against somebody else in this room, right? You, say you sin against the person next to you. You offend them a great deal. And then you come to me and say, I'm really, really sorry. And I say, oh, don't worry, you're forgiven, right? It doesn't make sense. I can't do that. I can't forgive your sins for, for when you sin against somebody else. I can't do that. That's another person's job. But Jesus here says to this man, your sins, unqualified, are forgiven. Jesus can only forgive the man's sins if he's the one against whom the man had been sinning all of his life. Right? That's the only way that Jesus can forgive the man's sin is if the man had been sinning against Jesus. And of course he had been because He's God, and every sin is against God. As David says in Psalm 51, 
Against you, you only have I sinned. That's the way David talks about his sin, all of his sin. David had committed adultery and murder, and yet he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David knows that all sin is ultimately against God, the creator, and the scribes know that too. That's why when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, the scribes say, Jesus is making himself out to be God. He's blaspheming. He's pretending he's God. But he's not pretending to be God. He is God, right? The scribes don't know that. Their, their preconceived notion of the Messiah is not that he's going to be God, a great man, sure, sent by God, yes, but they can't imagine that Jesus is God in the flesh standing in front of them. He must be blaspheming. So Jesus says, he knows their thoughts, which is interesting, right? He knows what they're thinking. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? I know what you're thinking. And those are evil thoughts, Jesus says. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he heals the man. And the logic there is, Jesus is saying, essentially, I have power to take away the consequences of sin. Why can I do that? Because I have the authority to forgive the sin itself. I can take away the consequences of sin because I have authority to forgive sin. And the crowds at this point, they, they marvel. Verse 83, verse 8, not 83, verse 8 says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. What's interesting there, they still miss it, right? Did you notice? They still miss it, actually. They think God had merely given authority to men. They didn't realize that God had become a man. They still miss it. They see it, they, get, they, they, they see it a little bit, right? They're getting glimpses, but they don't see the whole picture. So we have these three miracles, and those three miracles are followed by the call of Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. Uh, he, tax collectors always get a bad rap in any culture, right? Nobody likes the tax man anywhere ever. And yet, sorry if you're a tax person in here, I apologize. Um, but but it, it was even worse in that culture, wasn't it? It was even worse because the, the tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst, right? The scum of the scum. They, they were Jewish people who were conspiring with the Roman occupiers of the Jewish nation. They were betraying their nation. They were betraying their race. They were betraying their religion. And Jesus comes to this betrayer, this traitor, and he says to him, follow me. And he gets up and follows. Interestingly enough, Matthew does the exact same thing that the paralytic man did. We're told he gets up, right? The paralytic got up and left. But Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. I think it's interesting that the tax collector is the one who follows, right? The disciples don't get it. The demons do. The Gentiles sort of do, and they're scared to death. The scribes say he's blaspheming, but this tax collector immediately acknowledges the authority of Christ and gets up and follows him. One of the things that that shows to us is that it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, right? It, it doesn't matter uh, the life that you've lived, 
It only matters whether you, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've been a tax collector or a prostitute or the president of the United States. It doesn't matter how bad or good you have been. What matters is do you see the glory of Christ? Do you see that he is God in the flesh who has authority? Do you see his glory as king, that he has authority over the wind and the waves, that he has authority over the demons and our bodies, that he has authority to forgive sins and remove the curse, that he has authority as God in the flesh to call us to follow him? He is our glorious king. Do you see it? That's what matters. Not, not your background, not what you've done, not all the catalog of bad things that you've done, right? That's not what matters. What matters is do you see Jesus for who he is? Well, interestingly, Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and then Jesus actually goes with Matthew to Matthew's home. Matthew, immediately, he throws a party so that all of his unconverted friends can come and meet Jesus. And Jesus begins to eat and drink in Matthew's home. He sits down with Matthew's friends, and once again, somebody is bothered by this. The Pharisees are disturbed. It's another response to Jesus, another time that people don't get him. And the Pharisees go to Jesus' disciples in verse 11, and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? They say he's hanging out with the scum of the earth. What kind of a teacher is this? He's supposed to be you know, a religious teacher. He's supposed to be a good person. Why is he hanging out with these people? This doesn't make any sense. Again, they, they, don't see, they don't see the glory of Jesus. And Jesus reminds them. Verses 12 and 13. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, sometimes people think that the glory of God is seen in in sort of a, a mere formal religion. That's what the Pharisees had ultimately. They had a lot of religious things that they did, and they did them very well. They thought that the glory of God was seen in, in obeying certain religious rules in order to get God to like you, in order to make sure you were still good with God. The Pharisees did that well. They outwardly obeyed God's rules down to tithing of their spices, Right? Could you imagine bringing a tenth of your spices into church every Sunday? All right, here's a tenth of this. And that's what the Pharisees did, right? They had it all down. They did it well. They were good at religion. But their hearts were hard. They didn't love people, regardless of their background. They didn't share the heart of their father, right? The glory of the father is, is seen in his heart. And what is his heart, according to Jesus? It's to show mercy, to love the unlovable, to care for the widow and the orphan, to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. God desires mercy, not empty religious ritual. The Pharisees don't get it. Doesn't make sense to them, right? If you're a righteous, upstanding person, if, if you're a religious person, right, you should avoid these kinds of people, Jesus. That's what they're thinking. This is their preconceived notion of what righteousness is, avoiding bad people and, and being good with good people. Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not it at all, right? That's, that's not righteousness. It's not simply, it's not avoiding sinners and obeying a select group of rules outwardly. God doesn't simply call us to obey a set of outward commandments while our hearts remain untouched. See, God wants more than simply 
an outward thing. He wants our hearts. He wants us to have a heart to show mercy to those who are in need. Do you, do you have that heart to show mercy, to love the unlovable, to, to drink with the scum of the earth, right? To laugh with prostitutes and drunkards, to sit down and, and eat with them? That's what Jesus was doing. That's the glory of our Savior. Now, the Pharisees don't have that heart. More often than not, you and I don't have that heart. But Jesus did. Praise God that he did, right? Praise God that he loved the unlovable like you and me. This is the glory of Jesus' mission, right? He came to call sinners to show them mercy. Do you see the glory of Jesus as God in the flesh, exercising his authority to forgive sins and show mercy to sinners? That's the glory of Jesus. That's what we need to see. We've talked about missing his glory and seeing his glory. Now, now there's one more story that talks about celebrating Jesus' glory. It kind of brings this all together. The disciples of John come to Jesus. Again, some people who don't understand what's going on with this guy. And in verse 14, they come to Jesus and say, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What's, go- what's going on, Jesus? This doesn't make sense. We have these certain ways of doing things around here, and you're not following them, and we just want to know what, why, what's going on. And Jesus' answer is really priceless. First thing he says is that the wedding guests don't fast when the bridegroom is near. The bridegroom is near. So it's not time to fast, it's time to celebrate. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Jesus is saying he is the bridegroom, right? He is the bridegroom of God's people. We'll come back to that. Then he says two, these two little parables. One's about new cloth and an old garment. One's about new wine and old wineskins. And I have always been confused by these two parables. They've always troubled me a little bit. I, I think I've always wanted them to say more than they actually say. I, I've wanted to read into them a little bit more, and, and it's not there, but they, they do have a point. It's a very simple point. All of these people that we've been looking at miss who Jesus is because he doesn't fit with their preconceived notions of who Jesus is. He doesn't fit. He doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't work with their understanding of the way the world works. The disciples don't get it. The scribes don't get it. The Pharisees don't get it. The disciples of John the Baptist don't get it. Right? Nobody gets Jesus. He's new wine. And they're using old wineskins to try to contain him. They're using old paradigms to try to understand him. But he doesn't fit in these old wineskins. He doesn't fit in their ways of thinking. You can't just sow Jesus into your life as it is. You know, here's my life. Here's the way I understand the world. And I'll just take this little Jesus patch and sow him into the right square right here. Right? It it doesn't work like that. He will tear your life apart, is what he says. Right? Because he's not just a little patch. He's not just a little piece that fits into your life as it is. Jesus doesn't fit our old ways of thinking, doesn't fit our old paradigms. He's not just a piece of a puzzle that fits into the rest of our lives. He's the whole puzzle, right? He's the whole thing. It's like we've been working off the wrong box top the entire time. We have all these pieces and we're looking at the wrong... No, 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 he's the picture. And, And of course, God was doing something radically new and unique in Jesus. Something that had never been done before. 
right? Because in Jesus, God became flesh. That's what all of these people have missed. That's what's made every single one confused. The disciples don't understand. Who is this, that the wind and the seas obey him? Well, he's God, right? He created the wind and the seas. The scribes don't understand. Who is this who forgives sins? He's blaspheming. No, he's not blaspheming. He's not thinking he's God when he's not. He's not pretending to be God when he's not. He's God, right? He's God come in the flesh. The Pharisees say, who is this who eats with tax collectors and sinners? He might be defiled. He might be made dirty, right? Don't you know, Jesus, that you don't eat with dirty people because you might become dirty yourself? Well, no, he's God, right? He can't become dirty. He's not going to be soiled by people. He came to show mercy to sinners. That's why he came into the world. Not to run from them, not to try to avoid them. The disciples of John say, who is this whose disciples don't fast? Why don't they fast, Jesus? What's wrong with your disciples? And Jesus says, because I'm the bridegroom. I'm the lover of your souls. He's the one for whom we were made to connect on a level that will satisfy He's the one whom we were, who, who, who we were made for to bring us joy, to bring us delight. He's the bridegroom. You know, all of history is heading toward a wedding. That's what the Bible says. There's a wedding in Genesis chapter 2, you know, Adam and Eve, and there's a wedding in the end of, of, of the Bible in the book of Revelation. That's where all of history is headed. It's where God in Jesus is united to his people in a way that we've never experienced before. It's interesting because sometimes we think about Jesus as our, as our husband. That's not really technically correct at the moment, right? The imagery being used is he's the groom, the bridegroom. The wedding is at the end of history. We're engaged presently, and we're awaiting the consummation. Jesus is our bridegroom. He's the one we were made for. He's the one our hearts should long for. He's the joy of our souls, and he's come into the world, and he was walking among them. How could the disciples fast, which was a sign of mourning? The joy of the world was standing in their midst. How could they fast? He's the bridegroom. But they're trying to fit Jesus into their notions, their own understanding of the way the world works, and it just doesn't, he doesn't fit. They don't realize that God is doing something new. There's a a new piece of cloth, a new wine, a new movement in the story. God has come in the flesh. That's why Isaiah says, see, I am doing something new, something you cannot comprehend, something unique and radical, something that's never been done before and will never be done again. God took on a human body and became a man and dwelt among us. He stood in front of us, joy incarnate, the bridegroom, that we might find satisfaction in him. Do you see the glory of Jesus? Do you see that it's something to celebrate, something to rejoice in, something to give our hearts to? That brings us to the the, the final point, which is is why do we need Jesus' glory? And hopefully, this question is kind of moot at this point, but I'm going to answer it anyway. I'm going to give three three brief reasons. Why do we need the glory of Jesus? Here, Here are three of many reasons, right? First, maybe most obvious, we, we need the forgiveness of sins, right? That's why Jesus, that's what he came to bring. We need his mercy. Jesus came to bring mercy. We are the sick who need a doctor. We are the sinners who need uh, King Jesus to take away our sin. And his glory is that he came to show mercy. And we need it. We need that mercy. So first, we need to see the glory of Jesus if we're going to find mercy in the forgiveness of sins. Second, we need to see the glory of Jesus if we're going to be freed from the grip of created glories. 
And we started out talking about the fact that, that all of these things grip our hearts. All of these things in the world our hearts look to and our hearts cling to, we grab hold of, whatever it might be. Everything from food to people to video games to movies, whatever, it doesn't matter, to grades, it could be anything. These things grip our hearts and they take hold of us. We need to see the glory of Jesus if our hearts are going to be released from the grip of created glories. And next time you're tempted with, with any sin, right, remind yourself of the beauty of the glory of your bridegroom. That, that, that Jesus, your Savior, is God who's come in the flesh, that he commands the wind and the seas and the demons, that he has authority to forgive your sins and to remo- remove the curse, that he's the physician who came for the sick, that he has come as your bridegroom to, to forgive our sins and to take us to himself, to be his bride. Next time you're, you're, you're tempted, right, remind yourself of the great love of your Savior who came into the world to lay down his life for his bride, to take our sin upon himself, to take, to take our dirt, to take our sin, to take our corruption on the cross and to bear it there and to defeat it and to conquer it. You see, we think about kings and their glory as conquering and, of course, that's true of Jesus, too, actually. Right? He did come to conquer. He just didn't conquer the way we think. He conquered by dying for our sin. He conquered our sin that we might become his bride. Meditate on that. Meditate on that every day. Let that melt your heart. It takes time, right? But let it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Open your eyes to see Jesus, to see the beauty of his glory that the glories of this world might lose the grip, their grip on your heart, that Jesus' glory might be your delight and not them. So I said three reasons. One, why do we need Jesus' glory? We need the forgiveness of sins. We, we, need, we need to be freed from the grip of the glories of this world. And finally, uh, we need to see Jesus' glory if we're going to share it with others. Right? Something this good can't be, can't be kept to itself. We can't hold it in. Right? The world needs to know about the beauty of the glory of our Savior. And like Matthew, let's, let's gather together tax collectors and sinners, right, and have a feast in Jesus' honor that others might come to see his glory as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we marvel at your glory, and yet I know, I know, I don't marvel enough. I need my eyes opened more and more. Even as I talk about these things, Jesus, my heart is not as moved as it should be. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would move our hearts, that you would direct our affections to you, that we would desire you, that we would delight in you, that we would know your glory, and that we would proclaim it to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.